0: I'm Inez Stepman from the Independent Women's Forum.
1: And I'm Jennifer Braceres with Independent Women's Law Center. It's Thursday at five o'clock and you are at the bar.
0: So time to to join us in a cocktail uh, on our laptops here and and more importantly, join our virtual happy hour discussion about issues that are at the center of law, politics and culture. I am drinking a sparkling rosé today uh, because I felt like a girly girl today. Jennifer, how about you?
1: I'm actually really excited about my drink. I am drinking, if you can see this, it's orange infused rum. And it's actually from like a craft distillery um, on the island of Vieques, which is off of Puerto Rico. Um, And I got it when I was visiting my cousin there not so long ago. And it's, it's really good. So I've mixed it with a little sparkling water and a touch of cranberry. And I'm very excited about this drink. (laughs)
0: <laughs> well, it's good that you have a stiff drink with rum in it, Jennifer, because today we are talking about so-called anti-racism and critical race theory, and more specifically, some of the recent attempts by the Biden administration um, and by potentially those in Congress to encourage teaching of critical race theory in public schools across America. Um you know, this is this is a a really uh, hot topic, I think, right now for good reason. Uh, a lot of parents in the last year, even though this is a longer running problem um, in our schools, in the last year, parents have really discovered um, how radical some of the teachings um, in public schools, and unfortunately, increasingly in some uh, elite private schools. Are with regard to the relationship between um, American kids and and their country, um, and and with regard to to race. Um, so I, I think because we've had Zoom school, right? Uh, a lot of parents have had Zoom school for the last year. They were actually able to get a window that they previously didn't have uh, into exactly what. Innocuous sounding words like anti-racism um, actually mean, in terms of pedagogy, in terms of curricula, in terms of practice and on the ground experience um, for kids in schools. So, uh, Jennifer, um, I know I know you used to be on uh, the U.S. Commission for Civil Rights, so that you are uh, one of the the perfect commentators on this issue. Could you explain a little bit um, the origins of of what? what uh, what critical race theory is, where it came from intellectually, um, and then sure. we will get to our guests.
1: Sure. So, you know, I think that most parents, when they hear that their schools are developing anti-racism curricula, are actually pretty happy about that because most parents are in favor of civil rights and they want their kids to learn about the history of the civil rights movement in this country. They want people to understand the values of equal opportunity. They want their kids to be taught to treat everybody equally. So they actually think it's a good thing. Then when they start hearing what's going on in the classroom, um, when they start hearing that their kids are being asked to rank each other in terms of privilege, um, when they hear that math classes are no longer going to be leveled, that everybody's gonna be in one class because of so-called equity concerns, These are the things that start to trouble them. And I think it's important to realize that these aren't individual policies or decisions being made in a vacuum. They all stem from this ideology called critical race theory. And critical race theory itself um, grew out of another uh, ideology called critical legal studies, which was pioneered in the 1980s by a number of law professors, but particularly by a law professor at Harvard Law School named Duncan Kennedy. Um, and there he is in all his Marxist glory. Um, so, Duncan Kennedy actually would say he's not a Marxist, he would describe himself as a radical. Um, and his view of the law was that law professors, you know, it wasn't enough for law professors to advocate changes. Um, he believed that really the law itself was an oppressive institution in our country, um, and he believed that basically, in, you know, a, tr- a true radical and a true progressive, I guess we might say today, um, has to challenge the very institutions um, within our society. And it, he, what he basically did is he developed a sort of, you know, uh, uh, an academic lens in which to view the world, and that lens views everything in terms of power struggles, just like the Marxists. So everything is a class struggle and all of our institutions, whether they be federalism or separation of powers or the electoral college or simple notions of due process and free speech, those are all um, institutions that preserve the power of the wealthy in the view of Duncan Kennedy. Um, And so, This theory, which was just sort of academic at at the time, um, was later developed by Professor Derek Bell at the Harvard Law School into critical race theory. And so it sort of took the same proposition, but instead of looking at the law and culture through the prism um, of class, it examined it through the prism of race. Um, And another scholar who sort of developed this idea was Kimberly Crenshaw. Also a law professor. And we're going to play a short clip from here, here, just so you can get an idea about sort of the intellectual origins of critical race theory.
2: So liberals, as well as conservatives, for the most part understood racial power in terms of racially discriminatory attitudes and behavior. That is to say, deviation from neutrality. Rationality would prevail over the bias of thought and action. And as this translated into debates about diversity or affirmative action, it created a contradiction for some of our liberal allies that was at the core of their thinking, on the one hand. their belief in this neutrality or this idea of merit obscured their ability to see racial power playing out in the standards that they used to justify the largely segregated institutions that they occupied. Convinced that so long as race was not explicitly a criterion for inclusion, the outcomes were not in and of themselves a manifestation of contemporary injustice. Moving in tandem with this institutional hiring practice were scholarly practices. They moved from a similar point of departure, namely, presuming that the factors and the values that had played a starring role in constitutional jurisprudence to date were race neutral. So those are ideas like federalism, existing entitlements and expectations, and societal security policies that were all over, that already were in place. So the brilliance, for example, of Derek Bell's scholarly leadership was his willingness to ask a different question. If dismantling white racial power is the goal, in what ways are these standard constitutional values the embodiment of the very problem that we're trying to interrogate?
1: So there's sort of two, I think, fundamental points that Professor Crenshaw makes here. One is that the objective is to dismantle white power. And the assumption is that whites have power, blacks don't have power, irrespective of class or anything else, education. And the goal is to dismantle it. Um, the second assumption and what Professor Crenshaw is saying is that there's no such thing as neutrality. There are no neutral laws, there are no neutral practices, whether it's grades, um, SAT scores, uh, you know, anything, any rule or law that currently exists Cannot exist in a vacuum. It is is by definition racial, and therefore uh, needs to be changed or brought down if we're going to ever empower Black people. So that that is the sort of Cliff Notes version of what critical race theory
0: is. Right, and then you fast forward to Ibram X. Kendi, um, who is is uh, perhaps the most influential, unfortunately, intell- um, intellectual in the United States today and and he picks up on that theme right the the um the title of his first book i believe it's his first book he might have had some but his first popular book is stamped from the beginning right? Um, and we see that theme continuing through the 1619 project. And the idea be, is is quite oppositional, um, for example, to the language that Martin Luther King used uh, when he talked about the promissory note that the Declaration of Independence um, had written a promissory note that, fa- uh, you know, failed, fallible human institutions had failed to cash, right, um, for Black Americans uh, for too many years. Um, this is a different kind of theory that says no, and, and as, as Crenshaw elaborated there, right, um, no, all of the, the institutions um, and, and the system that makes up America is inherently racist and must be dismantled if the goal is, quote unquote, anti-racism, um, then these systems themselves have to be dismantled. And you listed some really important examples of that, right? Um, due process, um, you know the Electoral College, uh, the First Amendment, um, things that until recently uh, the majority of Americans would have pointed to as part of our common or, or, or a shared American heritage um, that that were were uh, good things um, for for Americans of all races um, that to have those constitutional rights, um, to have equality under the law, and so forth. Um, this theory very explicitly rejects that. And um, we have a clip of Kendi to, to play real briefly.
3: This is not who we are is symbolic of how Americans on both sides of the aisle respond to major tragedies, whether it's a mass shooting or, or something else. And instead of saying, this is part of us, Americans say, this is not who we are. And, and when you say this is not who we are, that we don't have a history of of people attempting coups, that we don't have a a history of racial violence, that that we don't have a history of misinformation, how are we ever going to rid the American body of this if we don't first recognize it as part of us? The very heartbeat uh, of racism is denial. And the sound of that heartbeat that the individual makes is, I'm not racist.
1: I think it's really important to understand the perspective, right? It's really a negative glass half empty perspective. So whereas someone like Martin Luther King um, or other civil rights leaders uh, from the past, even Jackie Robinson, um, who we'll get to a little later, they might have looked at us as an imperfect nation um, with a certain set of values and ideals that we hadn't been living up to. As you mentioned before, the promissory note Uh, uh, allusion that King used in his famous speech. Um, They had an optimistic glass half full view of the country. No, it's not perfect. No, the glass isn't full, but we are constantly progressing. We are constantly striving to live up to our ideals. Kendi takes the opposite approach. Uh, It's very negative. The glass is half empty. America isn't a good nation with some racist people. America is an inherently racist nation. We're awful, and when we say we're not racist, that's an example of our racism.
0: So um, I I agree with that characterization, and the tragedy of this to me is that, especially as a um, child of immigrants, right, so have to sort of, um, in some way, learn what it is to be an American in a different way, um, it, it cuts us off from what ought to be, I used the phrase earlier, common inheritance, to, to my mind and and not just to my mind, but like in my heart, I am equally, um, indebted as my heritage to George Washington and to Frederick Douglass. Those are not, you know, sort of white American heroes and black American heroes. They're both great Americans, um, who contributed greatly to this country. And it, it, it really breaks my heart to, um, to see our nation's what ought to be our common heritage divided up in this way, um, and and it's very hostile to the the point of the American project, and I think o- openly so, right? Um, openly so, they're not hiding the ball here. Um, they're they're intellectually honest enough to say, no, in fact, it is the American experiment, the American project. That is rotted at its core. It's not because it was implemented by flawed human beings. To your point, there's there's very little um, you know hope of progress uh, in in terms of of actually being able to live side by side as equal citizens because the the very um, essence in which we swim, the very essence of the system uh, as encoded in seventeen seventy six, is the problem. Uh, that's that is a very radical view, but unfortunately, it's the view that is is uh, you know. Is, is gaining a lot of traction now, not just in the academy, but in our K twelve institutions, in our media institutions, even in corporate America. Um, which is why I'm so glad that we are have some great gra- guests to discuss this important topic with us. Um, joining us now to talk about critical race theory and anti racism, so called, um, is Charles Love from 1776 Unites, which is a movement to shape America's future by educating students about the best of its past, exactly, um, to, to try to build that common heritage for all Americans that I was talking about um, and, uh, you know, connecting young Americans of all backgrounds to what really they ought to consider their heritage and feel a part of the American project and, and um, able and empowered to participate in it. So, in addition to his work with 1776 Unites, Charles is the executive uh, assistant executive director of Seeking Educational Excellence. It's a nonprofit that empowers disadvantaged students to reach their full potential through excellence, rather than through an agenda that would have themselves see or have them see themselves as victims. Um, which, unfortunately, as we all know, can sometimes become a self-fulfilling prophecy. So, thank you so much for joining us, Charles, at At the bar.
3: Thanks for having me. I'm Hi, back Charles. here ch- chomping at the bit. <laughs> So you're going to have to rein me in between those videos you showed and the explanation. It, it's a lot to take in. It's a
1: lot to take in. But first of all, what are you drinking? Are you joining us for a beverage this evening?
3: <laughs> I am I, I am drinking. Uh, I was clamoring to get on. So I am drinking the uh, uh, Nature's Liquor, a nice glass of frosty water.
1: There you go. Well, it's a little early for some people, but- Yes,
3: know, maybe later. <laughs>
1: five o'clock somewhere, as I always say.
3: Yes, yes.
1: Um, so I want to ask you a little bit about the 1776 project, why it was founded, and and why you felt there was a need for, for this project.
3: Well, w- this thing has been evolving so quickly over the last year. Um, it was primarily, before we got to speaking solely on CRT, um, a pushback to the 1619 project. Remember, that was the... Call of the day for about a year. Everyone was talking about how they—they're they, all tied to the same thing, right? The country was founded on racism. The country is inherently racist. And here's essays pointing out the—it's like we are all racist. Let me count the ways. And they wanted to point out every facet. Traffic was racism. Breathing is racism. Healthcare is racism. This was racism. So we wanted to offer an alternative to say a combination of some of that stuff that they're saying is just factually inaccurate. Some of it is true, but it's not being carried to a logical conclusion. There's lies of omission and things of that nature. And as Jennifer said right before I came on, you're talking about, I think, Kendi at the time being so negative and pessimistic. It's extremely negative. And if you're going to give this to impressionable minds without the proper context, you're going to do a disservice to the children. And that's why we wanted to offer an alternative, show some positives in the even in the negative that was out there doing slavery and leading up to that and the fight for freedom. How there were some amazing characters along the way and amazing things were done in this amazing country. But I want to end by saying this, too, before we move on to your uh, next question. It's not only is it pessimistic what they're doing, but it is there's no context to it. So they say, in the in the clip you showed of Kendi, he was like, people wanna say that that's not who we are, but it is who we are. We've done these things and we've, he, he mentioned coups <laughs> in one of his clips. And whenever you're doing some kind of comparison, there has to be a baseline. And none of these anti-racist, CRT, 1619 Project, none of them tell you what the baseline is. Notice they're not going to teach these kids anything about any other country. So all you get is America's bad. He says there were cools and he was like, that's fine. It's true. But he doesn't say that it's Norman human nature, not just in America. And they focus a lot, at least in the 1619 Project, on slavery. And they don't mention that only 3% of the slaves stolen from Africa made it to America. So they just erase the 97% and just focus on that 3% because it's not really about what happened to these, the terrible things that happened to these Africans, is how can we smear America?
1: Right. I mean, the world was a barbaric place, you know, in the 1500s when when Columbus came, and right, Columbus gets a bad rap too in all of this. Um, And, you know, I always say the world was a barbaric place then, and, you know, slavery was practiced the world over. Uh, is still practiced, unfortunately, in some countries today. Uh, We don't often emphasize enough all of the blood and treasure that this country spills to end it, Um, which of course is not to say we shouldn't talk about the horrors of of human bondage and what happened in this country, of course we should. Um, But as you say, there needs to be a baseline, there needs to be context, and the negativity I think is not helpful for young minority students. what do you what do you think about why this is happening? Why is this there a big push for all of this now and and what is it doing to our students?
3: well, I, I don't want to give them too much credit um like you said, these bad ideas have been floated for years. People come up with new ways, whether it be because they want to dismantle the country, you know, the socialists and the radicals, or whether it's just they truly see a racial problem. They're just coming up with new ways, and they got a perfect storm between the pandemic and, you know, the unrest and George Floyd and things of that nature. So they haven't really changed what they were doing. So the why is, you know, for some different reasons. For some, it's power. From, for some, it's, it's a way to make money, but unfortunately, that's only a small percent. Many on the right think that that's, that's all they're doing. It's just a racket. Unfortunately, that's not the case. We have gotten gone beyond. You hear a lot about victimhood and victimization. It's not victimhood. I, I call it brainwashing. We, we have reached a mm-hmm. point of, of us being inundated to us. And it permeates the, the culture everywhere. It's in, in music uh, videos, it's in the, the media, in movies, everywhere. So if you hear it enough, you start to believe it. I always, every time chance I get, I like to point out, because it gives clarity, that I have many upper middle class Black friends who are very successful in America. And if you ask them specifically, when was the last time that they've uh, faced any kind of harassment or uh, racism, they can't remember that. But they buy into it because they hear it. So they think, well, maybe it's happened to all the other Black people except for me. So I think that's part of it. And so I don't think they're doing anything different. They didn't, they didn't become wiser over the last year. They just had the perfect uh, opportunities to push it. And that's what they're seizing on the opportunity, to be honest. Um, and as far as what it's doing to the kids, it's so detrimental. One, because it's not true. So if you make people believe that this is the case, they're going to act that way. So if you tell people that the the majority of the country is out to get you, then they may still try, some may still succeed, but in the back of their mind, they're gonna be thinking about that, it's going to affect them. But beyond that, let's look at the reality in inner city schools. In most of these areas, the schools are already failing. There've been recent stories in the last four to six years of Chicago having a sex scandal where a lot of these kids were being abused by people who work in the school. Atlanta, people went to jail for falsifying test scores. For decades we've been talking about kids graduating from high school and not being able to read their diplomas so we're not getting more hours in the school day so i just simply ask if we are shifting so heavily to changing the curriculum to focus on race the day is not getting longer what's coming out you know what is going to change what are they learning so in the schools where they're already failing and struggling to compete you make this a priority you fast forward 10 to 12 years, now they have to compete in the job market or try to compete in college with other students who were fortunate enough not to be inundated with this, who's gonna be better prepared to, to compete? So just from a practical standpoint, it doesn't, even if you believe the country is inherently racist, it's not smart in the huh. long run for helping these kids to be teaching them this instead of teaching them STEM. Um,
0: I wanna to return to the notion of a baseline. Um what we What we know is that this narrative, as you say, is is really replacing genuine civic knowledge, right? right. Um It's easy to teach a narrative, right? Uh, it's it's an easier. It's an easier thing to do uh, than than to actually um inform students yeah. in in a a complex and rich way about this country's history. And what we see, is that, um, you know, civic literacy is is plummeting at the same time as we see, I'll just contrast some of these polls real quick. Um, so for example, we see that uh, anywhere from a third to about half of millennials and Gen Z think that the United States is a, to your point about not having perspective about the rest of the world, a uniquely, um, a uniquely evil country or a uniquely racist country. Um, and then you have anywhere from, from around two thirds of those generations who say that the United States is systematically racist, is um, a racist and sexist country. And then if you contrast that exact demographic group, right, um, let's say the under 40s or the under 45s, my generation and then Gen Z coming up behind me, you find that we know nothing. As a collective group, we know absolutely nothing. So only one in 20, uh, one in five uh, people under the age, Americans under the age of 40 can pass the very basic citizenship test, if you ever looked at it, um, to, the, that we use to naturalize uh, immigrants. My, my own parents took it. Um, it's, it's a pretty basic test that asks questions like, what are the three branches of government, right? Um, how long is a senator's term? Really things that could be at one point expected for children to know in grade school or maybe middle school. Um And we find that only one in five Americans under 40 can actually pass that exam. So I I think you're right. we want to speak a little bit more to this, this um, like sort of moment where we're seeing actual civic literacy. And of course we're seeing, you know, literacy, literacy decline. And uh, mathematics scores, you know, have been flat for for decades now um, in the system, despite spending more and more money um, in, in the public school system but um, just to stick to to civics specifically, why do you think we're seeing? I mean, th- these things seem to me to be connected. And, and just could you elaborate a little bit more on your point about how what are we losing when we're teaching this narrative rather than the specific facts of the system?
3: Oh, I'm, I'm smiling from ear to ear because it's almost like this was prepped for me, <laughs> like this was pre-planned. One, one, because it is so important that we've gone away from that. And I think we've been going away from that in schools for about eight to 10 years, even before any of this stuff came along. And, you know, 1776 is trying to gr- create a better, more positive narrative and at C where I work, what we're doing is focus on, we focus on solutions. So one of the things we're doing is civics. We're trying, we're partnering with another group to actually do, it's funny, you mentioned the citizenship that we're gonna do a competition to see how many people can pass it because it's important and coming up with curriculum that's actually going to bring that back to school. So. I, that's why I'm so passionate about that because you you get upset about stuff you don't know. I Julie made a comment about 1619 project I saw on the screen, and that being put in the curriculum in schools and. Even the founder, once pushed back against it, had to admit that, well, this isn't history. This is a, a, a," what did she say? This is an essay of memory. Well, why are we allowing to teach something in school that's just what somebody feels? And one key point that 1619 that I hear a lot of pushback against them that no one says but me, that's really important, is they're talking about how after slavery ended during reconstruction and blacks went to the polls against this great opposition, all true and fought to vote for the first time. And they used that to say, to bridge it to the first blacks in Congress and Hiram Revels becoming the first senator. Now, how many people do you think know that the Senate was elected by state legislators? Therefore, none of those black voters had anything to do with those blacks being sent to the Senate because they were picked by the state legislators, the state state legislators who voted were all elected by whites because blacks didn't get the right to vote until the month prior. But they're teaching this in school and that's what they think. So a lot of this anger is being pushed by a narrative, but it's a narrative, like you said, combined with a lack of knowledge. So we need to give them the knowledge and understand it. And lastly, I want to leave with the fact, because we have to get this in, and I know we're going to expand the conversation, that people need to wake up, parents didn't know what was being taught. When you two were talking before, when I was in uh, backstage, you talked about how with remote learning and COVID, people got extra access and they're like, what, what is this that's going on? So they're slightly starting to find out, but I, I still believe it's really small percentage. We need to find a way before we get to the legislation, which I know we're going to get to, that we need to fight back in this narrative Debate Because if we lose the debate, then those parents will say, well, you're giving me two options. I'm going to take that option, which is wrong. We need to tell them what this new racism, this progressive racism, as I call it, is going to do in the long run.
0: Um, that's, I think, a really great uh, time to bring on our second guest to add to this conversation. Um, Stanley Kurtz is an author, journalist, and anthropologist uh, who has taught at both Harvard University and the University of Chicago. He's currently a senior fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center and a contributing editor to National Review. And he is a subject matter expert as we turn to uh, two, especially two elements of federal policy. First, the, the Joe Biden um, administration proposed rule on critical race theory. Um, and grants, and second, a civics bill um, that is working its way through Congress, which I know we've all been talking about civics and the lack of knowledge mm-hmm. in civics, and yet it would seem that this bill, unfortunately, might enshrine the critical race theory narrative rather than actually improving civics. So, uh, Stanley, welcome to At The Bar, and, and thanks for joining us.
4: Thanks so much for having me.
0: Um, yes, just so you... a little... Oh, go ahead. No, you go ahead, Ness. Um, just to kick it off, um, I just wanted to pull something from what Stanley wrote, um, just because I love I love the word. Um, he, he said that with regard to this Civics uh, Secures Democracy Act in Congress, which is um, this bipartisan bill that is being worked on in Congress right now, he said that re- Republican co-sponsors are being, quote, hornswoggled, which is a great word. Um, but uh, Stanley, why don't you explain to us a little bit what this bill is um, and why uh, it, it's not civics as I think um, a lot of, of uh, not just Republicans, but moderates and, and um, even even liberals in America would, would agree that it's a good thing that more people can pass that citizenship test, that more people understand the basics of our government as we've been talking about. Um, why is this not that?
4: Well, thanks, Inez. Uh, it, it really is remarkable because we're talking about diametrically opposed realities And I go back to your wonderful presentation there, and I was particularly struck by uh, the Kimberly Crenshaw clip, where she dismissively and in a hostile way spoke about what she called standard constitutional values. These were the things that she wanted to see gone. And I think most Americans, when they hear the word civics, they get uh, uh, all sort of warm and fuzzy inside and say, yes, that's what we need, civics. And we'll learn about the three branches and checks and balances and federalism. And and our children will learn, well, standard constitutional values. And little do they know that from a combination of how this massive $6 billion civics bill is written and the new rule just released by the Biden administration, giving priority criteria for grants in history and civics, that that this bill is a, almost an anti-civics bill. It's it's a bill that will fund the sort of people like Kimberly Crenshaw who, uh, who accept critical race theory and who reject so-called standard constitutional values. So it's understandable that a Republican at first glance might sign on to such a bill or think it sounds like a good idea because it sounds like traditional civics. And of course, the people who sponsor these bills and have a an agenda, you're right, Kimberly Crenshaw and Ibram X. Kendi are very open about what they're doing, but that's not necessarily true of the people who sponsor these civics bills.
1: But it's. I think it's important to know, for parents to know the origins of this stuff because it all sounds really good, right? We're, we wanna be anti-racist, we want to teach our kids civics, we want to teach our kids the history of the civil rights movement, but it's important For parents to understand that the way we do those things is as important as doing it. And not everything that's called anti-racist is anti-racist. I mean, some people would argue that Kendi is himself a race, if not a racist himself, certainly a race baiter. Um, And so I think that's why we brought in those clips at the beginning, because it's really important for people to know that what's being put forward right now is not what parents think it is.
4: That's absolutely right, and think how short a time it's been. Right now, many of your listeners, I'm sure, have heard of critical race theory. Many of them may not have heard of something else called Action Civics, which would also be funded by this civics bill, essentially mandating that children do political protests and lobbying outside of school and get course credit for it, and almost inevitably those protests turn out to be on the left. These things are all new, and until maybe even less than a year ago, no one even knew that there was any other kind of civics than traditional civics, and now all of a sudden, everything has flipped, and it is rather remarkable how quickly it's all happened.
1: Right, civics has become civic action slash social justice slash protesting. Um, yeah, it's fascinating. I mean, I have four kids, and my my our kids' high school last year was going to give them all a few years ago before COVID was going to give them all the day off so they could go in and. Protest gun violence, and you know they were all going to have a walkout, and that was just fine with the school. But you know, if they had wanted to walk out to protest anything else, anything you know, uh, school choice or you know a- any any other issue, they they wouldn't have allowed it. Um, so it's
0: school choice; they wouldn't have allowed <laughs> that directly uh, impact. Well, that's why I said it. <laughs> and, the,
4: and this all comes from the teachers who lead the discussions, the teachers who lead. They are mandated. They literally are mandated by the laws that are favored here and that will be favored by the federal bill and that we've seen in Illinois and Massachusetts to discuss contemporary political controversies. And we know the opinions of the teachers unions. If they were to discuss the school choice controversy, even if they were to try to be neutral, I don't think they would succeed very well. And nowadays, a lot of teachers just say we we, we aren't even going to try to be neutral. We can't be neutral. The issues at stake are too great so you're really you're really getting out and out indoctrination,
0: well, but that actually brings up an a, a question so um you know this narrative, whether it's as as um, Charles pointed out it didn't you know didn't begin with critical race theory before critical race theory there was the sixteen nineteen project um, but these these narratives uh, have been embedded in the education system for quite some time, so you know even when I was in high school um, We were taught a, I would say, a quite negative um, sort of narrative about America um, from the start. So this is not a a sort of totally new phenomenon. The the metastasization and the extreme views of it may be relatively new, but uh, the the bent has been there for quite some time. And unfortunately, it really is integrated with all aspects of our K-12 system, i.e., the schools of education are the most left-wing parts of already left-wing universities. Most teacher trainings are, um, you know, have some of this identity politics or critical race theory lens that's embedded um, into it. Uh, You know, most administrators went through a bunch of programs that also see the world in this way. Um, and then that's before we even get to teachers in the classroom who um, oftentimes a lot of the stuff is not coming in as curriculum. It's coming in as supplementary material uh, that it hasn't been you know, vetted by the public in any way. It hasn't been voted on or added to state standards. It's just coming in as supplementary material. Um, so I, I guess my question then would be do we need a sort of comprehensive way of fighting back against this, especially since the Biden administration uh, has given it a shot in the arm already with this proposed rule that's going to evaluate grants to school districts on the basis of how close to Abram Kendi they can get in their curriculum. No, I'm not joking. The the um, proposed rule actually cites Kendi's work as an example um, of what schools should be striving for. It also cites the 1619 project, right? Um, so... You know how how can we fight back against this in a comprehensive way? Whether that's on the state level, whether it's on the like individual organization level, the parents um, in an, in a town. You know what? If you are a parent concerned about this in your school, what can you do? And um, Stanley, I'll give you first crack at it, and then Charles, I'd love I'd love if you would um, also answer the same question or add to what Stanley said. Yep,
4: I think there are two key things that can be done. First of all, I believe that on the state level. In order to uh, staunch the immediate crisis of critical race theory and action civics being forced on the states, the states need to pass bills that bar those from the K-12 curriculum. You can do that without violating free speech. You couldn't do it in higher education, but you can at the K-12 level because teachers actually don't have free speech when they're in the act of transmitting the curriculum decided upon by the state and the school district. States and school districts have every right to set their curriculum. And what's gonna happen is that the federal bill is so large, you're going to see something like what happened if it's passed that happened with Race to the Top, where these very large grants came down as carrots from the federal government. And then the left-leaning state bureaucrats who all went to these left-leaning ed schools are going to apply for the grants and accept all the conditions and only if the governor stops them uh, will they not apply for the grant. And if they apply, and the, for the,
1: by the way, the governors won't stop them because the governors want them to get the money.
4: And the only one who stopped it with Common Core was Rick Perry in Texas, right. and he was viciously criticized for it. It was very difficult to do. So yes, I think we can predict that if the bill passes, this could easily be forced on red states, just as Common Core was forced on uh, red states. So that's. So one thing is I think states out of self-defense have to pass these laws as the only way to stop this. At the local level, uh, I, uh, I support, I don't get any money from, but I support and uh, advise a group called American Achievement Testing, which is trying to build an alternative Amer- U.S. history curriculum around the wonderful textbook uh, Land of Hope, written by Wilfred McClay, one of our finest historians. It would be a real alternative to what's presented. And then we have the 1776 Unites, which is turning out kind of curriculum supplementary material. So what I would say is you need to organize, take control of your school board. And then when AAT has completed its curriculum, you start getting uh, the structural basis of a U.S. history curriculum from something like AAT, and then you go to something like 1776 Unites for supplementary material, and you fight this on the district level, because parents is where our strength is. The state bureaucrats control education and tend to undermine anything the legislatures do, and we're seeing what's happening.
1: Well, let me just inject a note of reality in here, because I agree with you, but I'm a parent of four kids, and I have been fighting some of these battles, for for over a decade, 15 years now. And I will tell you that most parents just don't want to rock the boat, um, even when they disagree. They don't want to rock the boat. They especially don't want to rock the boat now, uh, it, you know, in 2021, after the long summer we had and all of the protests and the death of George Floyd, which most parents, you know, are very sympathetic about, um, they they want to help, you know, in any way they can uh, for this you know country to heal racially. I mean, they feel very empathetic, um, and they they and and they don't want to be called racist, so they don't want to object. Um, how do we get them, the parents, even parents who care, to speak up?
4: Well, you make great points, Jennifer, and I don't disagree with the points you raised. I'll try to make the counter case, but I can't predict which way it's going to go. You've admirably sketched out the pessimistic case, but I would say a couple of things. Fifteen years ago, when you started, it was different. Fifteen years ago, I was trying to talk to conservatives about how important it was to change higher education, and you know they laughed at me and they said, "When these kids graduate and they get a job and start paying taxes, everything's it's going to be the fine." Real
0: world, <laughs> <you> <laughs> just transform the real world.
4: That's it, and so, yeah. and now I don't have to say anything. They all say to me, how do we fix the schools? The school's messed up. Stanley, help us fix the schools. And, and parents are spontaneously in district after district organizing to fight this stuff. And there are groups organizing at the level. People are calling me onto Zooms. I'm going crazy with Zooms, and they're coming to me and saying, and I'm not the only one, believe me, they're having Zooms out the wazoo with everyone who's ever talked about education because they want to fight this. What you say is absolutely true. There is a terrible fear, but it's a, it's a critical mass problem. And as more and more people get angry. You could really get a flip and a big reaction the other way. I don't know that it's going to go that way. It might be just like you say, but I see real hope for um, pushback on this.
1: What do you think Charles? Are we at that tipping point?
3: The, the, the pendulum is getting close to the apex. I will say this. You're right. Um, everything I, everything Stanley said is, is spot on. I'm going to add a little to it, though. But you're right, Jennifer. They're afraid. But I would just ask, from a logical perspective, you just ask those parents, what's the alternative? Being afraid, to, uh, afraid of being called racist makes me chuckle. <laughs> you're already racist. Anti-racism literally says everyone is racist. So what are you quiet for? What are they going to call you a racist? They're already doing it. It's baked into the cake, so you might as well do it. Um, And and then uh, earlier, before we came in, you were talking about, Could you say uh, the question is, you know, comprehensively, how do we do this? We need... The legislative stuff that Stanley talked about. We need the parents. We need to attack the school boards, which is part of the things we need to do. We need to have people because it's not every school board. You find the most, you know, extreme ones, and you run somebody against the two or three people who are most extreme on those screen on those school boards. But it's also like I said earlier, the narrative. I wrote an article recently and I said, you know, because I'm just open in their face about it, but not a rule way, but it's just blunt. Just say it. You hate the Civil Rights Act of 1964. You think it's racist because I think it was Ines before we came in that said that we should use the Civil Rights Act to challenge some of the things that they're doing. But from a from a I don't know how that will work um, legislatively. You know, Obviously, you're going to get a fight. But from the narrative standpoint, it's really great to just say, wow, the Civil Rights Act that we all love, you celebrate it every year, says this. You're doing the absolute opposite. Explain yourself. You know, call it, when they're calling you racist, call it racist. So how is it not racist to tell a 10-year-old boy that he's an oppressor? He's 10. He's not anything but 10. You have to make this stuff plain and simple and not be afraid. It's difficult it is to stand up. There are people doing it. The only problem, and it's getting better. I see a little of it. But- I mean, we're all, you know, by nature, we want self-preservation. So the people who are speaking out who are center left only spoke out as much as I praise them, but they only spoke out after they came for them. We all know Brett Mm -hmm. Weinstein, but if they did not have the day without a white, and he refused to, to, to leave, he wouldn't be speaking right now. So we need those people to speak before they get to that point. And are we there yet now? I don't know. But I know at 1776 Unites and at C and all the organizations I work with, you know, there's like like Stanley said, I, I get information from new organizations almost daily and we're just creating alliances and we're gonna do what we can to put the information out there that it's... And we have to point out lastly, that it's detrimental to the kids. That's the way you get to the people who are scared to say something or those blacks who are like, well, technically I might disagree with it, but they're trying to help me. No, they're not. It's not going to help your kid to be forced to, to go home every day mad because he found out some new racist thing that happened in 1940 that he didn't know. It's always happened. It's not new information. But they didn't teach you how to get ahead. Why aren't they t- teaching people what they can do to get ahead? In spite of all this, how can they get ahead? There's a formula. Why aren't you teaching it? So if these parents and these kids hear that, they're going to get upset that you're these people who are teaching this tend to be elite. Is like W.E.B. Du Bois right. all over again. So they're going to run away to their chateaus, you know, and feel good about themselves because they told you how bad it was. But they're living fine. You're going to be the one that has to struggle because you didn't do the things you needed to do to prepare yourself for the American dream.
0: So um, I would be remiss here if I didn't point out my my uh, policy expertise here, which I think school choice is a huge part of the solution. It's only a baseline, though, as we see um, this, is, this is happening in private schools as well for people who are paying $54,000 a year. Um, and they're afraid to speak out, too. So the solution has to be leveraged through school choice. Uh, but also, we have to find a way, as you're saying, to, to have people stand up and have the courage to stand up because that leverage doesn't matter unless you use it, right? Um yeah.
3: We need to surround the people when they do it, like that one father who wrote a letter. We should have, we he should be on every podcast. We should be lifting him up and supporting him. So, so you, you know, you you do it with kids. You do the same thing with them. When somebody does come out, they need to know that there's people behind them.
0: We're in a mind meld, Charles, because we were actually just about to put up an excerpt um, from this letter from this father. And and Jennifer, you're gonna have to pronounce the name of this school for me because I am not East Coast enough to say it. Brearly?
1: Uh, yeah, Brearly.
0: Rarely? Okay, I'm not like lacrosse East Coast. like yeah. uh, enough. School. After another year in New York, I'll, I'll say it, no problem. Anyway, um, but we do have a, a excerpt here. Um, rarely, by adopting critical race theory, this is from a father who pulled his daughter out of this school that is, as I said, $50,000 or more in tuition, um, is advocating the abhorrent viewpoint that blacks should forever be regarded as helpless victims and are incapable of success regardless of their skills, talents, or hard work. What barely is teaching our children is precisely the true and correct definition of racism. Um, so, so right there, you know, we see uh, I- exactly some of the threads of what we've been talking about. One that if if we replaced some of the um, names of groups in what a lot of these activities are, it would be an obvious violation of the Civil Rights Act, right? Um, if we were separating out black students in in public schools. Uh, and having separate affinity classes for them where um, you know individual material for black students was being taught and that would be an immediate lawsuit under uh, the, the Civil rights Act of 1964 um, either one of you can weigh in uh, on, on this question but um you know how, how do we use the law in this case um, and to to actually um, reassert because I think you're right charles it's, it's a it's a very uh, it's powerful argument. Um, but I'm hoping that it can be more than a powerful argument. It can actually be a tool in in pushing back against some of these pernicious theories.
3: I want to say something quickly and then go to Stanley because I know he'll have more to say. I just want people to remember that um, de Blasio in New York specifically said he wanted to change the admission to the selective enrollment schools because there weren't enough black and brown kids. And that is literally letter to the law shall not be done for racial imbalance in the law. So we're just ignoring the law. I don't know how you win a lawsuit because I'm assuming that these judges are afraid or people would be doing it. So the, the, the law is there. We just have to do it. So Stanley, how do we do it? Well, I'm not against um, civil
4: rights lawsuits. I think it's a good idea, and I look forward to seeing them. But having said that, you look over at First Amendment issues in higher education, and you see the groups like FIRE and Alliance Defending Freedom have been doing a magnificent job and winning case after case. They never lose. But for 30 years, the problem has only very slightly contracted because the, the other side doesn't really want to change. And people said when uh, we tried to pass state-level campus-free speech laws, well, schools already have to enforce the First Amendment. Well, yes, but they don't, and that's why you need the laws. So I'm not against the lawsuits, but I think they have to work in tandem with legislation at this point because uh, if we do what we've done in higher ed, we'll be fighting critical race theory for 30 years and winning lawsuits, and it will still be there. And particularly, remember, what will happen with these state-level grants from the big federal bill is that the federal government will say, in order to get this massive amount of federal money, you, the Board of Education of your state, must promise to impose in your state standards and state requirements, action, civics, and critical race theory on every district in your state. It will be systemic, and you won't be able to fight it with with individual lawsuits.
1: Well, I think the law is a tool, but it's just one tool in in the toolkit. Inez and I have had a lot of conversations about this um, through our work. And I think it's going to take, you know, it's going to take bringing lawsuits. It's going to take educating the public through programs like this. It's going to take parents speaking out. It's going to take school choice. It's going to take people running for school board. It's going to take a great deal of personal courage for individuals, uh, to fight this, um, not just fight what the government's doing, but to fight what their individual schools are doing. And Charles, one thing you said sort of got me thinking, um, about where the tipping point is and I think for a while when my kids were younger when it was really all just about curriculum you know what are they teaching about racism what are they teaching about civil rights what are they teaching about history parents might have disagreed with it but they weren't going to take to the streets over it over curricula Um, I think now one of the things we see happening that's tipping people is that it's more than just curricula it's elimination of of higher-level math classes in the name of equity. It's breakout sessions where we pull out the privileged kids and lecture them on how privileged they are. And it's those type of things that I think are driving um, the the latest student activism. I will tell you that in my town, they did decide to eliminate... In the middle school, they had three levels of math. They decided to eliminate that um, and not offer... Uh, sort of tracked math level classes until the 11th grade, but what they added on top of that was almost a secret, uh, a secret program. It's called the Calculus Project. It's not, it's not actually secret, but it was only only the parents of disadvantaged children heard about it. And so you could apply for this program, and if you're a minority, you can get extra help with math and and basically do the advanced math that they're taking away from everybody else. So they'll give it to you on the sly in the summer. And that really, really upset a lot of parents in my school district, much more than, you know, what they were teaching about Columbus or, or, or Abraham Lincoln or anything else. Um, when they were taking away the tools of success from their kids and making them no longer accessible, that's, that's what have, what's pushed these parents over the edge.
4: Yes. When they tell your child that they should feel guilt and anguish because of the color of their skin, that really crosses a line. And on top of that, here's another example along the lines you mentioned, Jennifer. The other day I saw a memo someone had captured from uh, the head of a school district telling teachers to keep teaching critical race theory, but because of parent complaints to keep it off the social media platform where they share all of this with parents. That's the kind of thing that really drives people over the edge. By the way, another solution here, legislatively, the Goldwater Institute has a model curriculum transparency bill which has been floated in several states. And that would make it easier just even to check up on what's happening and then potentially to remedy it.
0: Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because actually, Actually, IWF has a petition on that as well, um, and we are all in favor of, of transparency. And that's that's been the only silver lining from this egregious Zoom schooling that a lot of families have been going through. I think, it, as I said in the beginning, it's really woken people up to what their kids are are actually learning and what those innocuous sounding phrases actually translate to in the classroom. Um, but thank you both so much, uh, Charles Love and Stanley Kurtz for joining us at the bar. Um, we are grateful for your expertise and your insight. Um, thanks to our listeners uh, for, for tuning in for yet another happy hour conversation. Um, and uh, just enjoy happy hour now, I guess. Uh, continue to to get braver and to, to speak out. Um, I think we've got some great examples here uh, with us today of, of folks who are fighting this, who are raising their voices, despite, as Charles said, getting called mean names. We got to get over that uh, because it's it's time, uh, it's time to have some courage. Um, because frankly, uh, we, it's either now or it's never. I think uh, in in a lot of ways. So once again, thanks for joining us at the bar, everyone.
1: Cheers.